I want you just to take a moment. Wherever it is that you're watching this, wherever that you are entered into this moment of worship, I want you to take a moment just to sit on that word that says He is for you. You know, it's something as Christians that I think we hear a lot. It's something that perhaps we encourage each other a lot with. But I think in this moment, as we're gathered together online, as we're a community of faith that are expressing this moment of our hearts before the Lord, this, this idea of He being for us, it's a, it's a profound revelation of the truth of God. It, it's a profound revelation of the reality of Christ in our lives, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. To say that God is for us is to say that, that He is on our side. It's to say that He has fought battles for us. It's to, it's to agree with that song that we just sung uh, before that said He brings an end to war. It's the idea that shalom, the, the beautiful thing that the Bible speaks of, of a, a place where things are just as they ought to be in God's presence. This place of shalom is prepared, set aside, given to us that Christ would stand before His disciples and all the crowds and say, if you are weary and you are burdened, come to me. I will give you shalom, peace, rest, my kingdom. I am for you. I'm not against you. I'm not, I'm not trying to create division. I'm trying to bring us together. Would you, would you see me? Do you see me? Because if, if you see me, you would know that I'm here profoundly in this moment for you. And I, and I have a sense in my spirit as we were just singing this song, and I was just off the side here worshiping along with the team, and I saw a picture that I wanted, to, I wanted to just pray or speak over us because I think it's going to resonate with some of you watching this at the moment. I saw a picture of somebody standing in a field and in that field there, uh, up to their knees, uh, was covered in cement. It was like they were standing in this really heavy block of cement and there was a word that was written on the front of the cement and it was the word fear. And they were literally cemented in fear. And I think that communicated two things. One, that that was what they were cemented in, that they were stuck in that place of fear, that that was what they had grounded themselves in. They had allowed that concrete to build up and and to set around them. They had chosen the position of fear. And it spoke of the power that fear has, that fear fear is like cement to us, that it, it freezes us down, it stops us moving forward, it holds us in a specific place. So both that choice, of being stuck and the reality that fear sticks us and cements us is the picture that I saw. And I saw this person as they're standing there in that place. I felt like that would resonate for many of you. That that's kind of how you're feeling. Maybe you're feeling physically that way in this time. Maybe emotionally you felt stuck for a while. You know, everything that's been going on in our city here in Hong Kong with all of the protests and the changing political landscape and environment over the corona outbreak and now the third wave, it can make you feel emotionally like you're stuck. Perhaps for some of you who have lost jobs or where this has been a really hard time and things have not worked out how you thought they were, 2020 has not been the year. You've had to put plans on hold. You feel stuck and fear wraps around you like concrete and holds you down and in place. And I saw that person as they're standing in that field, they were holding a a cup of water. And they just began to pour the water on the concrete that was around their legs. And it was this amazing thing because the, the water never dried up. It just kept flowing out of the glass and it kept on splashing onto the concrete. And as it did, I began to see the concrete slowly but surely begin to wash away, begin to dissolve under the power of this water. And I felt like the Lord was saying, I need, I need you, I to tell the church today that if anyone is feeling stuck, if anyone's feeling stuck in their emotions, stuck physically, stuck with whatever's going on in their lives, if fear is grappling and holding them down, I'm pouring out my spirit in this moment because I am full them. I'm not against them. I'm not wanting them to be stuck. I'm a God that always moves us forward. If you're feeling stuck right now, if you feel like you're going backwards, if you feel like you're held down or or wrapped to one thing, know that the Holy Spirit in this moment is pouring out His Spirit upon you. He wants to pour it out with that generous wrist. And and I want to encourage you that in this time right now, just open your hands wherever you are. I know it might feel strange. If you're on a bus, it's going to feel really weird. If you're on some transport somewhere, if you're at home, whatever it might be, just take a little moment of faith right now. Just pause your heart, calm yourself down, put your hands open. And doing that, it's just like, God, I need you to pour that water on me. 
I need that Holy Spirit on me. I'm stuck. I'm feeling myself trapped. I'm feeling myself worn down. I feel like I've got concrete around my legs right now. Lord, my hands are open before you today. And I'm doing this because I believe in the generations that we just sung about. I believe in the blessings that we've just sung about. I believe that you are a gracious, glorious Father. I believe that my context and my situation right now is not the reality of what your Scripture says about me. The way I'm feeling about myself is not the reality of what your Word defines as my identity in you. And Lord, I turn to you now knowing you are for me, asking you to fill me, asking you to pour out your spirit on me again. Father, begin to wash away the concrete, Lord, of our emotions, the concrete that has held us back, Lord. The fear, Lord, that keeps us trapped, Lord. Your word says perfect love, cast out fear, pour out your love, pour out your love, pour out your love on us right now, Lord. And that song we sang just now, there's this little word, amen. It's something we say all the time, amen. We say it so often as Christians, it becomes glib to us. We just kind of throw it out there like, amen, amen, you know. That word means, I come into alignment, Lord, with your promises. It means that I align myself. I agree with your word. I, I, I place myself believing in you above believing in my circumstances and situations. When we say amen, we're asking God to do the very thing that his word tells us that he can do. That, a word, that, main, that word amen is very powerful, very important. And we sang it over ourselves. Amen, amen, amen. As that concrete begins to get washed from your legs today. May you hear the word amen spoken over you. May your spirit rise up and say, yeah, I want to I wanna join with that. I want to say, yeah, your will be done, Lord. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven in my life. Wash away the things that, that are fear in me. Lord, I confess the fear. I feel it. I recognize it. I know that fear is an emotion you created. That fear in and of itself is not a bad thing. But Lord, that fear has gripped me. It has held me down. And so I say amen to every good purpose, every faithfulness that you bring. I believe in your word and I know that you're faithful to it. And so Father, for each person now, whatever their context or situation, I thank you for this moment. And I thank you for the reality of your presence in our lives. We celebrate it. We believe in it. I believe that even in this last moment of worship, Many people's feet have been released from those concrete blocks of fear in the name of Jesus. Lord, restore us, strengthen us. And Father, we say together as a body, amen. 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 You know, it's such a privilege to be able to have our worship team with us uh, each and every week. These guys pour out so much of their time and their love and their energy in just putting us in a place. And I have to say, doing it in an empty room like we're doing it in right now is not the easiest thing, but they bring everything of themselves into this moment each week. And uh, I know you're at home and they can't hear you, but would you just love on these guys a little bit and thank them? I think it's amazing that we are so blessed uh, with those amongst us that can do that with us. Um, I am really excited to be able to follow up uh, from my word last week. If you uh, weren't with us last week, I want to encourage you just to go online. We've been doing this series called Who May Dwell? And we've had a, a number of, of words in this series. Pastor Tim, uh, Susanna, and Ellison have brought words uh, so far in this series. And uh, last week I brought a word about what it means to speak truth. Uh, and I feel like in this particular time that we're in right now, with all the stuff that's happening in the world, that is such an important thing for us to, to remember and for us to walk out. It is not slandering with our tongues, but speaking truth. That was last week. But I want to take it a step further today and, and begin to speak about another aspects of our words. And I, I want to start by reflecting around something. You know, um, there was this thing in the 80s and 90s called commitment. That's right. It was called commitment. We spelt it C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T. -E and, and commitment in the 80s and 90s, it was this crazy idea that if you actually said something, like if you actually said you were going to do something, you actually ended up doing it. That like if you made a promise, you actually came through on your promise. 
I mean, we need to remember in the 80s and 90s, this was before mobile phones. It was before the internet. It was before social media. This was a time when people actually spent the majority of their time with real human beings. And if somebody said to you, hey, let's go out for dinner on Friday night. Let's meet at 6.30 p.m. on Pettit Street. Guess what? You showed up at 6.30 p.m. on Pettit Street. You actually committed to what you said you were going to do. You actually made sure that you were on time. The reason being is because if you were late, you had no way of contacting that person. In fact, the only time that you could contact them again was the next day when you picked up this thing called a telephone in your house. It had a landline and you picked it up and you called your friend at their home and you said, I'm so sorry I was late. Where were you? Because you didn't want to go through the embarrassment the next day, you kept your word. You said, I'll be there at 6.30 at Pedestry. I'll meet you there. You showed up on time. You honored your word and your commitment. I, I, I think these days, commitment, promise keeping, keeping our word, we, we have something else now today that we're devoted to. It's different, something else. We're now devoted to this. It's called double confirm. Come on, Hong Kong, you know what I'm talking about. Double confirm. Double confirm happens because we realize that nothing is ever set in stone. Nothing is ever guaranteed to happen. Nothing is ever set to, to totally come through with just one single confirm right? Uh, one confirm is like these days. It's like an expression of interest, but it's not actually a commitment. Commitment only ever comes with that double confirm. So when someone says to you today, hey, uh, let's go out for dinner on Friday night. Why don't we meet at 6.30 on Pettit Street? You might reply something like this. Oh, that sounds like a lovely idea. I'll be there. That's one confirm. But actually you're thinking in your head, that's a lovely idea, but I actually don't know what else might come up in my calendar between now and next Friday. I don't know what other social engagements I might be invited to. And while I like the person who's just invited me out for dinner at 6.30 on Friday, there might be something else more important, more fun, more interesting that might happen that I might get invited to. So I'll just give them that kind of like, oh, that sounds interesting. See you there. But I'll wait until next Friday before I double confirm that I'll be there just in case something else might come out in my diary. And if nothing else comes up, then I'll double confirm on Friday. But guess what? I'll probably still be late. Why? Because I have a mobile phone and I can and reach out to them and tell them that I'm running late. And guess what? Actually being late looks okay because late people are people that are important in this time. So it's all right if I'm late. And guess what? They were late with me last week. So it's all right for me to do that. And I've always got the power of double confirm. Are you with me, church? Like, like it fascinates me that we're now in a culture where things like actually saying something, saying I'm going to do something and following through, that promise keeping and keeping my word actually seems old fashioned. It seems like it's kind of out of date. I mean, this is not just happening in our social lives either. Put it this way. If you held a corporate job in the 90s, the average amount of time that someone stayed in the same corporate job in the 90s was six and a half years. Today, it's less than three years. Take a look at marriages. The commitment of time in marriage, staying committed to your marriage, has over halved in just 10 years. Think about this. Most people these days actually have two churches that they are a part of. And, and a recent Barna Group study of churches around the world actually taught us this, that the amount of time that somebody stays committed to a single church is actually less than five years. And that drops to below less than three years if you're in the under 30 demographic. That's a, that's a shocking statistic, that if you're under 30, you're likely to stay committed to any one church for less than three years. And it seems to suggest that now in our culture, we have other things that we find valuable, important. Things like our flexibility, things like our ability to change our mind at any time, uh, things like independent decision-making, things like social connection above everything else. We have these other priorities, which means that the actual thing, something like a self-sacrificial commitment to doing what I say I'm going to do, no matter the cost or the, or the impact or the challenge or the obstacle, those sort of commitments, they seem like they've, they're a long way in the past. You know, as Christians, this should actually really concern us. This is actually pretty sobering for us as Christians. 
Because if the scripture tells us anything about who God is, if the Bible tells us any concise or consistent picture of the person and the character of God, it is this, that our God is one who never backs down on his word. Our God is one who never breaks his promises. That's the entry point of our understanding of what scripture says about who our God is. So it's not a surprise that when the poets wanted to speak of the faithfulness of God, when the poets wanted to speak about a character of God that expressed his love, expressed who he was, they would cry out and say, this is a God who keeps his word. He's a God that is faithful. So much so that when the poets wanted to describe who is it in humanity who's going to be able to enter into the presence of God, who is it as human beings that are, that are going to be able to be in God's presence and, and spend time with him, fellowship with him, go into his sanctuary, rise up on his holy hill, experience his presence in his life? Who are these people? They are the ones who are going to keep their word. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I, if I was thinking about writing a list of stuff down, that would be like, okay, what is it that will enable someone to dwell in the presence of God? If I was going to write a list down, keeping our word would not be in my top 10. It may not even be in my top 30. But in the Old Testament, when they began to think about the actual qualities and characteristics of someone who believed in God and wanted to show God their love, they would place this idea of keeping word right at the top of that list. Let me show you this from the passage we've been focusing on throughout this series on Psalm 15. This just blows my mind. I'm going to read the first four verses. Are you guys okay? You're with me? You settled in? Okay, let me just read this to us. It says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and does not and does what is righteous. He who speaks the truth in his heart and has no slander on his tongue who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. Notice this, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. I, I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly challenging because I know that I'm someone who so often, to my shame, breaks my promises. And I want you just to pause and think about you yourself. How, how often do you find yourself committing to something and then backing out of that commitment? How often do you find yourself saying something with your mouth and not backing it up with your actions? I know that I've done this so much. Think about us in even a, a church context. How often have you said to someone, hey, I'll pray for you, and you never pray for them? How often have you said to God, and this is serious, you've said to God, hey, I'm going to repent of that, and you actually never get around to repenting. This is why the, the poet here in Psalm 15, he basically says this. He says, keeping your word matters. I mean, it, it really matters. And the reason why it matters is because what you say with your mouth and then what you back it up with your actions says something, not just about who you are. It actually says something about who God is is keeping your word aligns yourself to the person of God. Now, what we can see in this passage, if we begin to understand this idea of keeping word from an ancient Hebrew concept, we begin to see why they took it so seriously and perhaps challenge the fact that we don't take it seriously anymore. I think there's a lot that we can learn about how we need to get better at not double confirming, but actually being people where our yes means yes, and our no means no. It starts here in Psalm 15 with the idea of what an oath is. The word used here is the word sabah. It actually literally means to swear by an oath or to commit to an oath. But the word itself is part of a much broader or wider word uh, that throughout the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, we see speak about oath. And that's the word brit. And the word brit means to clasp or to grab a hold of, to bind to something. And I, and I love this imagery of Hebrew words because it helps us to really deeply understand the concept and the way that the ancient Israelites began to think about their God. They began to understand that commitment, that coming through on a word is like grasping a hold of, clasping a hold of, binding yourself to someone. See, they saw the word keeping and relationship as synonymous together. It's the binding and the connecting and the grasping of another. That's what I do when I give my word. 
And the ancient Israelites understood that when God decided to reveal his love to humanity, when God decided to express that love, to show his commitment and his heart towards human beings, he did so in this idea of binding himself to those people. For love to be expressed by God is to be done in binding his word to those people. This is the idea of covenants in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time today to go into all of the details about covenants, but I want to speak briefly to it because if you don't understand how the ancient Hebrews understood covenants, you'll begin to not understand how then Jesus speaks about what keeping our word is all about. You see, for the ancient Israelites, they knew that God revealed himself through this idea of britting with his people, clasping a hold of, binding with them with his covenant. There are a number of them in the Old Testament, but three of them are central. That's the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. In the Abrahamic, in in Genesis 12, God shows up, chooses Abraham, and he gives him a covenant to him. Not just for Abraham, but for all the generations that were to come, like that song we just sang about. And God stands over Abraham and he says, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to send you out. and I'm going to make you into a new nation. And I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to provide safety and security. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so much that your, your generations will be so much. You won't even be able to count them like the stars. And in that blessing, you're going to become a blessing to all nations. I'm going to create in you, Abraham, a whole nation that's character is going to reveal my character to the world. And and I'm going to do this. I bind myself to you that this is my promise to you and my word never fails. And, And what you see in this moment in Genesis 12 is God freely voluntarily choosing Abraham. Abraham has not earned this covenant. He's not earned God's promise keeping. So often we make our promise keeping based on whether we think the other person has earned it or not. Listen to this church. But God begins to manifest his love for people by saying, even before you've earned it, I'm going to give my promise. I'm going to bind myself to you. This is my expression of love and my commitment to you. And God seals it with Abraham through a blood sacrifice, the shedding of blood to confirm the covenant that was brought. Now, this covenant is then grown in Moses. And Moses is called up Mount Sinai many years later and God renews the covenant with him and in this time gives him the Ten Commandments and the law, writes down all of these things that express this covenant keeping God with his people. And he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to flourish you. I'm going to bring you into your promised land. And here are some ways in which you are going to honor and bring yourself to me. The covenant was a two-way reality. And God's people stood before him in Mount Sinai and they committed themselves in obedience to that covenant. And once again, a blood sacrifice was brought to enable it to come about. And then David, many years later, God once again taking one man and begins to speak this covenant relationship into him again and says, I have never given up on Israel despite all of the history, despite all the rebellion that's happened. I've never given up. I give my word to you again. And he says, now one from your generation, one from your bloodline is going to sit on the throne forever. He begins to speak about the coming Davidic dynasty, the reality that the Messiah would come, the one who would create shalom for everyone through the line of David, this covenant connected, this word given. And when God gives his word, he seals it once again with David through blood sacrifice as a sight of saying, this is what I am to you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'll give my word to you. And that word reveals one thing so central to everything else that's about to happen. You can trust me. Church, this is so important. This is why promise keeping is so important to God. Because actually what promise keeping is about is trustworthiness and faithfulness. Two things that we struggle so often with, but two things that become the foundation and cornerstone in the revelation of the character of God. Truthfulness, that faithfulness to him. Let me, let me just pull these threads together. And I want to read to you actually now just to summarize what these covenants and what they communicated to the people of God, because it's important for everything I'm about to say next. So let me read this to you. See, he is a God of love and he desires to be in relationship with his people. His love is so complete that he binds himself voluntarily to their destiny, even though the people continue to disobey him. He refuses to break his covenant even in the most vile disobedience that can be imagined. 
He is faithful to his word each and every time. And through all of this, he proves one critical thing. He can be completely trusted. Church, this this is the central reality of the Old Testament center of worship. How they came to worship God was through the reality that he can be trusted, that where people had let them down, where nations had let them down, where rulers and authority had let them down, the one person who never let them down was God. And so the central place of Old Testament worship was found on the reality that this God keeps his word, that this God can be trusted, that he's faithful. And that's why the Psalms are so filled with these beautiful moments where it says, oh, Lord, you are faithful, that your word is true, that you can be trusted all throughout the Psalms, the cry of what it is to worship a God that can be trusted. But the ancient Israelites also knew this, that it wasn't just about speaking words that demonstrated their worship of God. It was also about how they lived their lives. They made the connection that we so failed to make in this day and age. They made the connection That if their God is a promise-keeping God, one of the greatest ways for them to worship Him is by keeping their promises. It's by aligning their character and their nature to who God is. And the reason why this was so important is because the ancient Hebrews understood the connection of humanity's fallibility with keeping word because it went straight all the way back to Genesis 3. Are you still with me, church? This is really important. I know there's a lot of theology going on here, but track with this because it's going to apply so much for you in your life. Right back in Genesis 3, here's what the ancient Hebrews saw, the ancient Israelites. They were like, in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, what happened is one of the very first acts of humanity was to break word. It was to go back on a promise that God had come to them and said, I'm going to bless you. You are going to multiply. I give all of this creation to you. You are to be stewards of it. And the very thing that he tells them not to do, don't eat of this one fruit in the garden, right in the next chapter, that's the very first thing they did. The first thing humanity does is breaks its word. This is why I think the enemy has such a grasp on this area of our lives. This is why I think so often we as Christians are hypocrites. It's so often why I think we so often break our word because at the very root of it is what Adam and Eve did. They took that fruit, they disobeyed God, they broke their promise and they were thrown into sin, not just into sin themselves, but all of creation. And what we see in Genesis 3 is God's punishment to the breaking of that word, it's separation from him, separating from him and his presence. God cast them out of the garden and the rest of the Old Testament, they're wondering, how can we ever get back into the presence of God? How can we ever know what it is to commune with Him? We realize that in breaking our covenants, in breaking our word, we're separated from God's presence, which is what makes the covenant of Abraham in Genesis 12 all the more powerful. Follow this. Humanity had broken their covenant, had separated themselves from God, and yet God didn't give up on them. Even despite our sinful nature, despite the fact that we had rebellion against God, despite the fact that we failed to be faithful, God still pursued us. He was still willing to attach his hand to us. He was still willing to bind himself in covenant and love to us, broken humanity. That's what happens in Genesis 12. And when they see that, they realize, hang on a sec, our God is so different to us. Our God is so greater than we are because we broke word. And even in that rebellion, God kept his word. God continued to pursue us, which is why they began to go, how can we then worship, honor God with our whole lives? Well, maybe it looks like now keeping our word. Because if breaking our word separated us from God, then maybe one of the ways we reverse the curse of Genesis 3 is by beginning to actually stand on our promises, beginning to actually be obedient to what God calls, beginning to actually, when we say something with our mouths, actually back it up with our actions. When we do that, we begin to model a new humanity that takes us away from the brokenness of Adam and Eve and into the person of Christ. This is why... The poet in Psalm 15 says, who dwells in the presence of God? Well, we know who doesn't dwell in the presence of God. I'll tell you who doesn't dwell in the presence of God, those that break promises. So if you want to now reverse this, who's going to dwell in the presence of God? Well, it's going to have to be those that keep their oath even if it hurts. 
Those that actually begin to speak truth and back it up with their words. They're the ones that are actually going to do a profound thing. They're going to be able to walk in an opposite spirit, in an opposite way to everything that sin would ever tell us. See, here's the crazy thing that the poet of Psalm 15 knows that so often I forget. That keeping our word is nothing less than a profound restorative work that actually reveals the essence of our true humanity. It shows the world afresh the image of God. Come on, church. When we keep our word, we're aligning ourselves towards Christ and away from the narrative of sin and death because we're actually demonstrating a restorative pattern that reveals to the world what the image of God was actually always about. This is why it shouldn't surprise us that the one who is the greatest manifestation of the image of God, the one who is the greatest example of humanity, Jesus Christ, had a lot to say about keeping our word. In fact, in his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he lays out his manifesto, if you will, for his kingdom, he plants this idea of keeping word right in the middle of it. I want to show you this from from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. And I hope this has so far been helpful for you. I want to take all that we've just seen in the Old Testament. I want to now apply it into New Testament thinking and then for you in your context. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds. And he says this, starting from verse 33 of Matthew. Matthew 5. He says, again, you have heard that it is said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Everything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now on the surface, this might seem like Jesus is contradicting everything we've just thought about from Psalm 15. I mean, Psalm 15 says, don't break your oath, even if it hurts. Jesus then shows up and says, you heard it was, don't break your oath. I'm saying, don't even make an oath. So you kind of like, look at this, don't break an oath. And Jesus saying, don't even make one. And you're kind of going, how do these two things actually play together? Well, One of the things that we need to grasp here is what was happening in the first century when it came to oath-taking, when it came to making promises. See, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had a system of checks and balances that they used through their oath making. They would make oaths with people. Let's say, for example, you came to the temple in the first century and you're like, I would love for somebody to come and to, and to bless my home, to pray over my home. Maybe a priest in the temple would say, okay, I promise to come to your home on such and such a date and I swear by the temple gate that I will be there. And here's what the priest would do. They would never swear by God's name because they knew that if they swore by God's name, they would actually have to do the thing that they promised to do. So instead, they had a barter system of swearing to different things, swearing to to the temple courts or swearing to the temple gates or or swearing to, to the sun or something like that. They would swear to anything else other than actually to God's name. And the person who was asking for the favor would take the, the, the promise or the trustworthiness thing of what they said based on the level of the oath that they made. And, and it was a crazy thing because for priests, this was their get out of oath free card. This was their way of backing out of their promises and their commitments. This was their double confirm. I'll give you a, a, a promise on the, the, the gate of the temple, but if I don't show up, well, at least I haven't broken my word to the Lord. Hmm. So Jesus shows up and he says, you've heard about these oaths and you know what this whole system of oaths is. And he says, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous that you've now got yourself into a place where you're having to make an oath on this or an oath on that. And and you have different levels of how important that oath is. He says, it's ridiculous because don't you realize, let me read this to us. He says from verse uh, 34, he says, but I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. In other words, Jesus is saying, what are you doing? Because any time that you make a commitment, every commitment made is ultimately a commitment to God. This is what he's saying. He said, you can swear by the temple gate. Who made the temple gate? Whose presence fills the temple? God's. You can swear by the heavens. Who's in the heavens? 
God, you can swear by anything. Who's created it? God, anything you swear by is actually swearing by God because God is in authority over everything else. So, so as he begins to say this to them, he's basically attacking their, their lack of trustworthiness. What, what Jesus is essentially saying is this. You, you need an oath because your word is not trustworthy. Because if your word was trustworthy, you wouldn't need to swear by the gate. If your word was true, if you actually did the thing that you said you were going to do, you would need some barter system of oaths. So I tell you, don't make an oath at all. Just make your yes, yes, and your no, no. See, this is interesting. I've noticed this in my own own life with my daughter. So so let's say Mia comes up to me um, after dinner and Mia says this. She goes, Daddy, can can I watch TV after dinner? And I might say to her, well, if you eat all your food, I promise that you can, you can watch TV. And she'll reply and she'll go, do you promise? And I'll be like, yes, yes, I promise. If you eat all this food, then you can watch TV after dinner. Now, that should be good enough for her. That, like, my word is trustworthy, right? That should be, but it's never enough, right? Mia then has to go, do you pinky promise? She's got to put that pinky up, right? And if you're a parent watching this right now, you know that those pinky promises, that's serious. I mean, that is like locking it down. That for my little nine-year-old is double confirmed, right? Dad, if you give me your pinky, then you know you're going to have to come through with this, right? And she's even learned the barter system because I'm not trustworthy with everything I say. Because I recognize that sometimes I'll say something and I don't do it. That sometimes I have let her down. And she's had this now this, this need to get a double confirmed promise because I'm not actually trustworthy with my word. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and to the priests and to the Sadducees and everybody around. He's saying, you've got this whole complex system. Why? Because no one actually trusts you. If you actually say you're going to do something and you did it, you wouldn't need an oath. People would believe you. So let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And I love it. He goes this, it's really simple because everything else is from the evil one. This is where Jesus connects back to Psalm 15. Because remember, Psalm 15 was about expressing the character that we have that aligns ourselves with the character of God. That when I keep my word, I'm reversing the curse of Genesis 3. Where here's Jesus and he says, anything other than yes be yes and no be known, that is actually from the evil one. In other words, he's saying, if you want your character to be the character of God, then when you say you're going to do something, do it. Anything else than that, your character is then aligning to Satan, who is the father of lies. Do you want your character to align to Satan or do you want it to align to God? Anything else other than yes by yes, no by no, anything else beyond that is of the evil one. So you decide yourself right here and now. Do you want to be somebody who, reject, who shows the character of God? Or do you want to be someone who rejects the character of God? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Simple, right? Yeah, it is simple. So then why do we so struggle to do it? Why is it so hard for us? Well, I think that answer rests back in our passage from Psalm 15. Let me read this to us. He says, These are the people that can enter the presence of God. Those that keep their oath, even when it hurts. One of the main reasons why we fail to keep our promises is because we're not prepared to pay the cost of keeping them. Come on, church. One of the main reasons why we actually fail to stand by our word is because we're not prepared to pay the sacrifice of keeping that word. I love how the psalmist here says, hey, keep your word, even if it hurts, it's gonna be painful for you to do so. He doesn't say, keep your word, even when there's some hard work that will be required. He doesn't say, keep your word, even when it's inconvenient for you. He says, no, it's gonna hurt you to do this. It's gonna be painful There's going to be a high cost. And the question the psalmist is asking us is what is the cost? What amount of cost are we willing to pay to keep our word? Come on, church. What amount of cost are we willing to pay to keep our word? If you want to be someone whose yes is yes and no is no, it's going to demand a price from you. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. Sometimes those hurts are as simple as sticking to that meeting at 6.30 on pedestry, even when something more interesting for you in the week came up. It means something very painful for some of you. It means that actually... That affair that you're engaged in right now 
that you need a season of inner healing and repentance and you need to step away from it because you made a vow to your spouse. You see, keeping our word costs us. If you want to be a truth teller, if you want to be a word keeper, then you're going to have to be prepared to carry your cross. You're going to have to be prepared to stand up and actually back the things you say. You're going to have to be prepared to lay down your life. You're going to have to be prepared to give up some of your preferences. You're going to have to be prepared sometimes to even give up your rights. You're going to have to be prepared to lay yourself down time and time again when that better opportunity, when that other thing, when that more influential thing, when whatever it is that might come up seems to tempt you away from backing down on a commitment, you're going to say, no, I don't want to agree with Adam and Eve. I want to be with the new humanity in Christ. I want to stand on the image of God and begin to say something that actually reverses the curse. I am in Christ, born of him. His death and resurrection paid the highest price for me. I mean, God so honored his worth that he was willing to take the price of his son. He's willing to send Jesus to die and rise for us so that we would know new life. That's the price he paid. What price are we willing to pay? Oh, but something better came up in my diary. Really? Oh, double confirm. God never doubles confirms. One confirm. Death, resurrection, sins forgiven. Everything else changes in that moment. Think about that for your life. Think about what this might mean for you. Think about what you might be imaging Think about the oath system that you've created around yourself because you're actually not trustworthy. And think about the work that might now need to be done in order to realign yourself so that simply when you say something to someone, they 100% trust it and they don't need their pinky. (laughs) I want to give you, as I close, some very quick ideas for how you might be able to strengthen your promise keeping in this season. Here's the first thing. I want you actually to reflect on what happens spiritually when you make a promise. This is really important. Reflect on what happens spiritually when you make a promise. The reason why this is important is because everything I've just taught out of the scriptures for you today, I know it's been a lot. I know it's been quite quick, but there's so much for you to unpack in that. And as you unpack all of that, you'll begin to understand how seriously the words are that come out of your mouth, how seriously promise keeping God takes. And so we have a worksheet that you can download either from the link in this post, a a worksheet that'll be up uh, later for you to take a look at at the end of this broadcast. And I want to challenge you to spend time in that worksheet this week. I mean, if you want to get better at keeping your promises, you need to make sure you understand the spiritual significance of promise keeping. And here's what will happen when you truly understand it. You'll make less promises. (laughs) You'll only make promises that you can actually keep. The ones that you know you're going to back out of. The ones that you know you might say that you shouldn't. You're going to begin to keep your mouth shut. Your yes will be yes. Your no will be no. Because you understand the spiritual weight of the words that are coming out of your mouth. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. I want you to study the patterns of your promise keeping. Study the patterns of your promise keeping. What I mean by this is I want to challenge you to keep a commitment journal. You can do this on your phone. Anytime that you make a verbal commitment or a a physical one with someone, write it down in your phone. But don't just write it down. Keep a note of what the circumstance was, how you were feeling at the time, why you said yes, or whatever it was that you made a commitment to. By keeping a track and a record of a commitment journal, when you actually end up breaking some of those commitments, you can go back and go, oh, here's the reason why I didn't keep my word. It's because I said this in this context. I was tired. I was rushed. I was whatever, whatever. And it broke down the thing that I wanted to say. So I want to challenge you to think about keeping that commitment journal. The third thing is this. I want you to identify the motives that drive your promise keeping. Identify the motives that drive how it is that you make promises. Because here's the reality. Some of those motives will be pure and good. Maybe, maybe you'll commit to doing something because God called you to do it. Maybe you'll commit to doing something because you love that person and it's a way of you expressing your love. Those are great things. But here's the reality. The majority of the promises we break are made out of motives that were wrong in the first place. So maybe the motive was insecurity. Maybe the motive was, I want that person to like me more. Maybe the motive in that case might be something like, oh, I'm trying to manipulate that person. I want to get that person to do something for me later. So I'm going to do something for them now. 
whatever it might be, but we make so many broken promises because the motives in the first place were wrong. So take a look at your motives and be honest with them. Fourth, do this. Communicate your promises cleanly, clearly, effectively, simply. Communicate them clearly, simply, and effectively to people. Now, this is really important because so much happens with broken promises when they're ambiguous, where we don't actually define what it is that we're truly going to do. When expectations get mismatched, then there are problems in relationships. This is also important because some promises need conditions to them. I remember just a few weeks ago when I was inviting Ellison to preach uh, just a couple of Sundays ago, it was right on the due date of his first child. And he said to me, Andrew, I promise that I'll preach that Sunday unless, of course, Brittany has her child beforehand. That was a condition to his promise that was completely right and completely appropriate. When we make conditions, clarify them. Make them clear so that the person you're communicating with understands your yes and knows that your yes will be your yes. Here's the fifth and final thing. When you break a promise, make amends. This is something that I think we fail to do so often. When you break a promise, make amends. The first person that you need to make amends to in any promise that is broken is God. Because remember that every commitment made is ultimately a commitment to Him. And so when we break that promise with a friend or we break that promise at work that we are committed to, whatever it is, we first come before the Lord and we say, God, would you ask I want to ask you for my forgiveness. I want, I want you to forgive me for what I've done. I realize that in breaking that commitment with that person or that thing here, that's ultimately broken your trust with me. I've gone against my word. I've aligned myself against the true humanity. Lord, I want to come before you and ask for you to forgive me. And receiving that forgiveness is so good. But then equally, it's not just about coming before God and making amends. We need to then go before the person that we've broken the promise to and make amends there as well. We need to remember that broken promises result in broken relationships. Come on, church. Broken promises result in broken relationships. And when that happens, we're leaving a, a trail of destructive relationships around our lives because we simply can't back up. We're not strong enough. We're not truthful enough. We're not loving enough to actually stand on the word that we've given, to communicate it well, to understand our motives, to back it up. We, we're, we're not prepared to do that. So we break it. And then when we break it, we're not prepared to go and make amends. Man, we so need the grace and forgiveness of God in this area of our lives. And so I want to challenge you to reach out this week and to begin to think about who it is that you might need to make amends with because you know that you've broken promise to them. Let me close with this. And I think this is so important. We serve a God who never breaks his word. That everything he says, everything he's written, everything he promises always comes through. And as Christians, as ones who are named as Christ-like, as ones who are trying to align our lives to the character and the purposes of God, recognizing in our sinfulness, we never get it right, recognizing that we need His grace, recognizing that we always need to come to Him and ask for that forgiveness to be set free from the many habitual ways that we break our word, but also recognizing that we want to align ourselves to the true humanity in Christ, away from the brokenness of Adam and Eve, and now to the new Adam modeled in the resurrection of Christ, that when I say something, I want to be so trustworthy that I never need to double confirm that my yes to you would be a yes. And you would know it, you would trust it, and you would faithfully stand with me as I walk out the word in your life and in my life. May we rejoice this week that we have a God who never breaks his promises. And may we also reflect our need of Him so that we can find the grace to also honor ours. Let me pray for us. Father, we're deeply challenged today because we recognize that we so often break our word. We recognize, Lord, that we struggle in this area so much that sometimes things come out of our mouths, we overcommit ourselves to something we know we're never gonna be able to pull off. That we promise something to somebody in it, and we know that we never have an intention of backing that up, or we promise something that we want to back up, and then we realize that because of the busyness or the things that are already on our plate that we can't come through. And Father, we also recognize that we come before you at times and we promise things to you. Oh God, I'll, 
I'll give up that relationship, Lord. I'll step away from that affair, God. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll stop looking at this porn. Oh, I'll stop this, that, or whatever it might be. We make these grand promises to God that we actually have no intention of keeping. Or maybe in a moment, it is what we want, but we have no mechanism in our life to stand on that truth. Lord, forgive us. Lord, thank you today that in this word, you've reminded us of the incredible value, the spiritual significance of being people of our word. We thank you that in this message today, we've seen Christ come before the people and say, you don't even need to make an oath. Every commitment you make is ultimately to God. So just speak simply, clearly, and mean it. And when you do, trust will rise. When you do, faith will rise. When you do, faithfulness will be there. Because when you do that, you're aligning yourself to me, one who's never broken his word. And Lord, for those of us that need to repent today, for those of us that realize that we have a consistent habit of aligning ourselves to the enemy, of going beyond the yes, be yes, and no, be no, and finding ourselves so often in the breaking of our word. Lord, we have a need to come to your grace. We know that you don't condemn us, that you're not beating us up, but we also know that that in our breaking of word, we separate ourselves from you. That if we want to know who dwells in your presence, It's those that stand by their word, even when it hurts. Lord, forgive us when we don't do that. Forgive us, Lord, when the cost has been too much. Forgive us, Lord, where where we're not willing to pay the price. And Father, as we sit in the soberness of our repentance, would you come and pour out that spirit on us again, like we saw in that picture during worship? Wash away the fear Wash away the condemnation, even the self-condemnation that comes from broken promises. And Lord, where we've had promises broken to us, where loved ones, people we care about, have broken their promises over us and it's hurt us so much. Lord, would you come and heal us? I just sense as I'm speaking this right now that there's some people watching this where their mother and their father have said things over them. A great promise that they held on to or you held on to, and then your parents didn't come through. And it really hurt you. I sense that this is for some of our younger people right now. And there was a deep sense of now lack of trust. You don't actually now stand by anything your parents say. And that's really hurt you. It's hurt your relationship with your parents. I believe that God by His Spirit wants to minister to that very place. He sees the hurt it's caused. He sees the pain that's there. And he wants to come in this moment and just begin to heal, begin to minister to you, begin to release the pressure, begin to pour over you. Take a moment in this moment to breathe in the Ruach, the breath of God, to allow him to strengthen you, to heal you, for you to find strength in him again. So however it is that you need to respond today, as the team come and begin to sing over you, as they begin to speak of Christ's faithfulness, that Christ and Christ alone is is enough for us. Lord, would you begin then to, to reaffirm our foundations, not in the concrete of fear, not in the shatteredness of broken promises, but in the reality of a God who never, ever fails. In Jesus' name.